we pitched the, the client with, we were like, hey, you know, you're out of the budget for this year. We are down like within our free time at the agency to kind of mess around with this and see what happens. So that became the, the playground essentially to, to, to run with this voice. You know, Anna, it's funny. We talk often on Social Pros about the impact and the power and the inexorable nature of paid social media. But today's episode, which features uh, a guest who was in popular demand, many of our listeners have asked us to bring him onto the show. And here he is, uh, Nathan, who used to run all the social for Stakem. This is a shining example of the fact that you can still succeed massively with organic social if you just do it a little different from everybody else. Yeah, you definitely do not have to have a ton of money to be super creative, as Nathan talks through today, um, because he, as everybody knows and loves, was the voice behind Steakums, which, by the way, fair warning on this episode, we do stay fr- we do say frozen beef sheets a lot, Jay. I think it's like a 400% increase from our usual episodes. <laughs> yeah. It is definitely the most we've ever said frozen beef sheets in a Social Pros episode. Hopefully yes. that will not trigger an explicit warning uh, from a podcast player, but this episode uh, is tremendous. Nathan is so smart, and the way they took this brand from from a cold start to international acclaim in social media is a lesson for us all. It doesn't matter if you're B2C, B2B, food brands, selling ball bearings, this is one to listen to. And Nathan's just an absolute delight, a fantastic guest on the show. Also fantastic, two things I want you to download. First, the highlight reel of this show, of the Social Pros podcast, we put together a downloadable ebook with highlights from all of our first 500 guests. Advice, counsel, things that have changed in social over the 10 years you've been doing this show. I want you to grab it. You'll really enjoy it. We put a lot of work into it as well. It won't cost you anything. It's the Social Pros 500th episode companion book. Go to bit.ly slash socialpros500. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash socialpros500. Zero. Also, a downloadable asset from our good friends at Salesforce, title sponsor for the show. It is their seventh edition of the State of Marketing Report, where the Salesforce research team went out and gathered insights from some 8,000 marketers from around the globe to figure out really what's changed since the pandemic. One of the amazing stats in that report is that 93% of businesses say that they will have used influencer marketing by the end of 2022. So that's like pretty much everybody. And there's a bunch of other really interesting data points in there. It won't cost you anything. I want you to download it. It's some of the best research available anywhere. It is the Salesforce State of Marketing Report, bit.ly slash state of marketing report, B-I-T dot L-Y slash state of marketing report. Bitly sounds a lot like Eatly. And if that was the case, our guest would be the perfect guest Nathan Alabach from Alabach Communications, formerly in charge of all the Stakem amazingness in social. Here he comes, right here on Social Pros. Social Pros listeners, you requested that this individual be on the podcast. And here he is, live in the flesh, the one, the only, Nathan Alabach, who is the creative director at Alabach Communications, a family-owned agency in the great Commonwealth. I think it's a Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, if I uh, have, have studied uh, that correctly. Uh, and one of his uh, projects in the past has been the voice of Stakem on Twitter, which is a very famous 
uh, usage of Twitter in the brand community. We're delighted to have him here talk about all things social. Nathan, welcome to Social Pros. Yeah, stoked to be here. Thanks, Jay. We're really uh, excited as well. Before we uh, get too far into the show, I want you to shout out your own show, uh, the What's Really Good podcast. Tell everybody about it. <laughs> I had no idea that you uh, were aware of that. Very cool. Yeah, uh, it's not it's not terribly active, but it's got a good archive of uh, just interviews and I'd say conversational interviews I've done with uh, content creators, social media managers, uh, just various public intellectuals um, that mostly revolves on, around uh, internet culture, um, but also some politics and, and various other topics. So yeah, I've been doing it for a couple of years on and off. And uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Absolutely. It's a super interesting listen. Uh, as you'll discover in this episode, Nathan is a very uh, smart and wise individual with a wide range of interests and that shows up in the What's Really Good podcast. Uh, so friends, give that uh, a listen if you haven't yet. We'll link it up in the show notes at socialpros.com as well. As I said uh, a moment ago, Nathan, you know a lot of things about a lot of things. And how did that base of knowledge end up making you a frontline social media uh, expert? It, it feels like an interesting career path. I'd prefer to uh, to call it. Uh, I know a little bit about a lot of things. <laughs> no, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I'm, I'm no. Uh, I'm a jack of all trades, I guess. No expert. Um, but yeah, it it is interesting because I, I guess years ago I never really foresaw my sort of interest in in a range of I guess what you'd call like liberal studies topics like philosophy, sociology, psychology, um, political science, that type of stuff. Um, I didn't I didn't see that uh, interweaving necessarily within uh, my work in advertising, but yeah, the, the Stakem account kind of brought that to life a few years ago. So we started it in 2017 on, on the, on, we started really creating the Stakem voice on Twitter. And the, the way that I started to integrate my views and perspectives was really just over time, like I'd say it really got going in 2018, once I started getting more comfortable with the voice and just kind of figuring out, okay, here's my thought, but then I have to marry that to the brand values and the brand guardrails in terms of like how to frame an issue in a way that's not going to polarize, it's not going to, you know, paint the brand in a bad light or whatever. So that became this kind of weird, um, <laughs> kind of, yeah, just, just bizarre dance that I had to do in my mind where I was just trying to figure out, you know, how to personify this brand in a way that was comfortable and natural to me, but also fit the brand in a way that yeah, it was going to get attention because it's like it's a frozen meat brand. So, of course, frozen meat brand talking about anything other than the frozen meat is going to be weird. But um, I, I wanted to, to see how far we, we could take it. So that's uh, kind of how we got started with it. Well, you took it a long way. Uh, there's no question about that. You're mixing it up uh, with Neil deGrasse Tyson and, and uh, uh, throwing shade to him on social. Here's one of my favorite quotes about uh, Nathan's work at Stakem. Is the social media manager of a frozen meat company eligible for a MacArthur Genius Grant? That That is not a, a tweet that you typically find out there in the socials. So uh, congratulations. I want to ask you about the Genesis story here. So your family-owned business, uh, Alibot Communications, works with a lot of food brands, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. And and so you end up, I presume, pitching uh, the Stakem uh, organization to, to run social was the pitch deck like, hey, and here's the thing, we're not going to talk about frozen meat, but we are going to talk about metaphysics. Like, just seems like a really complex keynote deck to to uh, to create. 
Yeah, like not to, I guess, make it not a big deal, but it was pretty informal um, in the beginning. We had been working with uh, Quaker Made, which is the parent company of Stakem, for about a year. And we did this big launch. We were trying to rebrand, you know, they're a legacy brand from the 70s, and we were trying to rebrand them for younger audiences and all that. And um, by the point that we'd started uh, the Twitter stuff, it was, it was in August of 2017. And around that period, we had uh, run out the the annual ad budget that we were working with them on. So we didn't have any campaigns on the horizon or anything. And the lo- there's a lot of factors that kind of went into it. But I guess the long and short of it was there was actually a Joe Rogan podcast that had come out in August that a bunch of people were contacting us about. It was his 1,000th episode. And the guest that he had on had mentioned Stakem. So people were being like, oh, man, like Joe Rogan mentioned this brand, like we know you work with them. Um, you, you should try to do something like try to reach out or whatever. And we had no real brand presence um, in social. I mean, we had a an old Facebook account, but, you know, organic reach was slowly dying a slow death at that point. And there was no Twitter presence. Uh, there was no Instagram presence or anything. So we just thought, Twi- you know, Twitter is an organic platform. It's pretty not easy, but celebrities are accessible to reach. So we thought, you know, let's just start trying to reach out to people on Twitter, see if there's conversations. So that was the sort of window we pitched the, the client with. We were like, hey, you know, you're out of the budget for this year. We are down like within our free time at the agency to kind of mess around with this and see what happens. So that became the the playground, essentially, to, to, to run with this voice. And then from there, just kind of developed as this client agency relationship, just figuring out, you know, is this working? Is it not working? What's too far? What's not far enough? And and we just we just kept it going from there until it uh, snowballed. That's crazy. It's insane how much uh, the press and attention this has received, and just just how uh, much the brand has evolved from from this voice that that you've helped them develop. How, what was your reaction when all of a sudden you started making headlines, and you know uh, everybody started following and just explosive growth, like? How did you feel? What was your reaction? What was the brand's reaction? I, very humbling. I mean, like I, I never would have thought that this would have been the case. I mean, I, we joked about it early on. I mean, I'm a pretty competitive person, but I came into this account really with not a lot of social media management knowledge at all. I mean, I had been, I had been working in brand social since 2014. But if you, I don't know, for most people, I think that worked in brand social around that period, there wasn't a lot of uh, cutting edge stuff. I mean, I was mostly running Facebook pages for brands doing like really crappy, um, like photoshopped holiday posts and just, you know, run of the mill stuff. And and I I wouldn't have considered myself a expert at all. But when I started on the Twitter account, it was right in the period of time when a lot of this stuff was taking off. Like in, like I mentioned in 2017, earlier that January is when Wendy's took off for uh, roasting people. That was when that like made national headlines. That that hit Anderson Cooper. So it kind of became this like big Twitter trend. And then in August, right when we started on the Twitter account, was when um, Moon Pie went viral for their uh, LOL OK tweet when they added. Um, I think it was a hostess. Uh, or something. It was, it was around the eclipse in 2017, and that went mega viral. And I just remember getting on Twitter and starting to see this stuff, which I really didn't have much prior knowledge of, and being like, "This is like really cool." But like, I wonder if I could do something like this. And I, you know, 
I do have an ego. I think every pretty much every social media person or per content creator does to an extent. So I thought it was fun to kind of like competitively jump in and like try to engage other brands and other people and just try to make some noise for this thing. But no, when, when the headlines started coming in, um, it was not something any of us expected. I mean, it really took us by surprise and it was really cool um, to see because I, I guess it was kind of the, the realization moment where we were like, oh, I guess you know, there is still space to, to stand out w- within the sort of uh, brand Twitter ecosystem. So yeah, it was cool. Yeah, kudos to, to everything and all of the recognition. It's, it's huge. But I think one of the things that you highlighted that I love, especially I also have a background with, with CPG and, you know, being on the agency side. And one of the things that I think you highlighted that it's easy to think from the outside that these brands just kind of sell themselves, or at least they hopefully do, right? Because it's food, right? Like who doesn't love delicious food and snacks? And there's this basic assumption that maybe it's easier, but you highlighted it perfectly where a lot of times there's this incredibly strong brand voice, but then how does that actually come to life in real ways in authentic ways and in genuine ways? And that's a lot tougher than it looks to give a brand a personality that still ladders back to that. So how do you, I know you touched on it a little bit with how you did it with Steakums, but how do you typically go through that process of evolving that voice and expanding it in ways that are genuine and authentic still to the master brand? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think for me, it really largely starts with text-based persona development. And I think that's why Twitter is such a powerful tool because Twitter to me, it's almost like the the reemergence of the mascot, you know, like the, the 80s and the 90s when that was super popular with, you know, cereal brands and fast food brands. And with Twitter, it's like, yeah, you don't, you might not have the, you know, Tony the Tiger or whatever, but you have this account that is clearly acting like a person and it's tweeting personable content out there every day trying to engage an audience around it. And I think using that as a kind of a baseline to then develop those assets into other platforms is really key. And it gives you an opportunity to play around and just figure out, you know, what what would this brand sound like, you know, if it was a mascot or what would this brand sound like, you know, because talking about staking, you know, like I said, and you, you just hinted at this as well. I mean, a lot of people come to this stuff being like, it's frozen meat, like just talk about frozen meat. And I think that is true to an extent, like some brands have the, the lug, I don't want to say luxury, but the there, the, some brands are so um, iconic and have such a, a presence that they're able to solely just focus in on what they are, and that's enough to like create like a gravitational pool. Um, for the rest of brands, yeah, they they have to play outside the box and, and figure out you know what's gonna get attention from people because it's just not enough. So I think just it's a, it's a tension, it's a push and pull of just figuring out you know is like what is the history of this brand, who are the founders. Um, where is, is there a geographical area that we can hone in on that we're from? Um, is there like values from within the company, things that we've done, causes we've donated to, uh, just uh, any kind of history that we can highlight? There's a meal or, or just memes. I mean, like with Wendy's, like talking about the, the fresh over frozen type of thing, you know, like there's just things that naturally resonate with people with, with and then you can kind of discover that like, by interacting with customers or just even just posting online, eventually you start to get feedback that determines, okay, just like a, like just like a comedian comes up with a bit and then kind of runs with that bit throughout their career at in and out, you know, within comedy specials or whatever. You do the same thing with brand accounts. When you start to post about things, eventually one or two things stick and then you can keep running with that. Um, like for us with Stakem, it was this whole Stakem Bless uh, messaging, which literally was just a one-off tweet 
from like 2017. And then it became this kind of sign off that other people started to repeat back. And then that became part of the branding. So the, obviously the sort of uh, rev- irreverence, whatever you want to call it, like the, the quasi religious element to it was not something that necessarily existed within the stake and brand prior to that. It just became part of the branding as we went on naturally. So there's, there's things like that there's, that you can experiment and discover with. And then other things, obviously, that are part of the, the current existing brand's history that you can play around with. But it's, but it's all a, a, push, a push and pull. And I think social media helps um, create the space to discover that. Nathan, there's almost a, a therapeutic or confessional nature, especially to your later work for the brand, to the degree that, as I understand it, lots of fans of the brand would literally DM Stakem and be like, hey, I'm having some troubles in my life you know, what What should I do or how are we going to get out of this pandemic, um, which is pretty heavy stakes for, for somebody doing tweets about, a, you know, frozen beef sheets. Um, how do you how do you confront that? Like, do you feel a responsibility uh, as somebody who they now have some sort of kinship with uh, in social media to to play that role? Or you're like, hey, that's not really my assignment here. Yeah, that, that was a big learning process, if I'm being honest, because in the beginning, when I started to get those messages, I'm I'm a I'm a fixer type of person. Like I'm the annoying guy who's always trying to solve things and, and be the hero in, in situations, not in like a grandiose way, but just trying to solve problems. And when people come to me in my personal life, which has always been I've just always been that kind of individual, like within different friends groups, you know, I just I like to be an open ear and I like to offer advice when I can, even if sometimes it's terrible advice. Obviously, you discover that years later, like, oh, man, I wish I would have told that person to do this thing. That was really dumb. But same thing with this with, with Twitter. I mean, when people started shooting us messages at first, I think I had this idea of like, OK, I'll try to tackle a lot of this and try to be, you know, just like I do with the tweets, you know, try to, you know, be as neutral as I can while also offering some substance um, but as it kind of piled on over time, I started to realize, yeah, that it just, it was a weird feeling because I think there's, um, there's, there's certain figures I know who do this, like with YouTube and, and Twitch who maybe are like in real life professional therapists or something, but then they also have like a YouTube channel or a Twitch stream and they'll offer advice and stuff like that. And it becomes this like really blurred line situation where like you are creating content and then getting reception in a way, like a genuine reception of people that have problems and want your help. And as you reply, it's like, there might be a, an element of like, you know, genuine, you know, hey, I'm trying to help you, but it's inevitably tied to the marketing here, which creates a really weird situation. So the more I thought about it, and the more time went on, I definitely tried to like, pull back from that. Um, just then would just kind of reply, you know, I'm sorry you're going through this, you know, really hope things work out, like just kind of getting more generic, because it did get to the point where some of the messages that we were getting were crazy. I mean, we were getting messages from people talking about eating disorders and abusive families and just crazy stuff that I was like, this is not, you know, I, I'm not qualified to, to get into this. And frankly, like, I don't want to encourage more of this. So there was a window of time that, you know, we tried to kind of grapple with that as, as sort of part of the brand, and then it just became pretty clear that it was uh, beyond our capabilities. Yeah, and you even made that clear. I think it was uh, late last year uh, you sent out a, a piece that said, I'm not your bestie. I am a brand here to sell you frozen beef sheets, which yes. I appreciate drawing, drawing the line here that we are still trying to increase revenue uh, for the company. 
But the problem, Jay, is that it's all baked in so much irony and it's so meta that people see that and they're like, yeah, Steakum's speaking to me. They get it. Like they're they're self-aware about it. It's all part of the thing. And I'm it, it's it's impossible to escape at a certain point. But yeah, you know, you're try. doing something right when your disclaimers end up being uh, commercially viable. Uh, <laughs> right. that is, uh, that's the height, the height of success yeah. uh, in the social media world. You, you were talking earlier, Nathan, about kind of early days and, and how the voice of the brand has progressed in social your relationship uh, with Stakem's parent company and, and sort of the brand managers there, was it, hey, here's an idea, let me send you uh, a proposed tweet and then they uh, comment on it? Or is it more, let's think about what we're going to do this month or sort of what was the back and forth approval process and cadence? How did that work? It was, <laughs> I, in all transparency, it was just a lot of trust. I mean, there were situations where it was, as you just laid out, where, you know, we had Maybe it was a, a thread of tweets or something that we were planning to talk about. And we just weren't sure if that subject was crossing the line in which, like you said, we would have a kind of back and forth email exchange or some phone calls and just be like, you know, is this something that you feel like you can kind of get behind or, or what have you? Um, but most of them weren't like that. I mean, I would even say even the Neil deGrasse Tyson tweet situation like that you mentioned earlier where Neil... Uh, he had posted something along the lines of, you know, science is true, whether or not you believe in it. It was kind of this, uh, you know, tagline that he he posts once in a while. And we tweeted like something snarky that was just a log off, bro, and then followed it up with, you know, a little bit more commentary. But that was literally I was home just playing video games. Somebody sent me that tweet and I was like, man, it's a dumb tweet. And I'm just going to reply to it. And I did not think much of it. And then when it started to take off, I had to kind of retroactively think through, you know, obviously I had a, a point of view that I was trying, was going, could have got across, but in the moment, that's not what I was thinking. In the moment, I was just thinking, no, I'm just going to be a little bit snarky, which we do once in a while. And um, obviously we had to follow up and create like a whole line of, of communication. Then the next day it was very chaotic as the uh, earned media rolled in and we had to kind of respond in real time to that. So there was like, I, I, that all of those moments, like the most viral moments, were much closer to that than like the sort of planned email exchange. Like I would just have an idea, I'd feel pretty good about it. The, the Neil thing was kind of exception because that was that was really off the cuff. But generally speaking, I would take like a couple days, a couple weeks to write an, a concept out. I'd shape it as carefully as I can, you know, thinking like what was what is the worst possible reaction and the responses to the responses, you know, trying to to map it all in my head to, to get ahead of it. And um, I would just eventually hit send and sometimes they'd flop and sometimes they would uh, go viral. But yeah, the, we, it would just depend on what it was. But all in all, I would say the, the relationship was largely built on trust. And after the first couple of times that it successfully went viral and that they, the client um, worked with us and they, they could see that, you know, we had the responsible comms set up to kind of deal with the earned media as it came in. Um, that that trust just got stronger. So, yeah. What I want to know is what are the things that you wrote and then deleted? Like that, that's that's the that's the archive that needs to be like a coffee table book. The ones like you know what? No man, this is too crazy. I can't I can't do that even for Stakem. That that's that's the, the 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 swipe file that I want to see, Nathan. Yeah, I I, I do have a, a lot of uh, notepads and Google Docs full of um of that that type of content it's mostly just stuff that would either veer too political like too partisan or it would veer too um too self-referential in the sense that 
it would all it would leave us vulnerable to attack. I mean, like there's certain philos like just for example, like there's certain sort of philosophical ideas. Um, I don't know, like around treating people better or whatever. Like let's say that that could potentially tie back to something like animal cruelty. Steakum's a meat company. Steakum might not be like a you know massive corporation that is like you know forming the slaughterhouses or whatever. Like it is a you know more. I don't even know what the, the official term is, but I mean, they're collecting, you know, kind of leftover meat after the prime cuts to form just like you do with burgers, sausages, hot dogs, whatever. So it's not necessarily like the lead offender within that, you know, the lead target, I would say, within like vegan activists or whatever. But there'd be certain topics around stuff like that where we would get close to incidentally and then have to back off of because it felt like, okay, if we try to go down this line of thinking, eventually when you get to the other side, it leaves the company vulnerable to attack. So we don't want to push it in that direction. And there's, so there's a lot of different topics that would go down that, which because the account was so meta that yeah. it would sort of inevitably draw in those conversations and draw in those types of cultural media critics. So we had to be really careful about what we talked about. Yeah, it, it feels like today in the social media world, and this may not have been true in the past, but today, the one unforgivable sin is hypocrisy. Like you can get away with a lot of other stuff, but if you've got hypocrisy, uh, people will call you on it and and will not give you a pass. So I think that instinct from you to just make sure you're inoculated against that. Well, what about you guys is, is probably pretty wise. And we did still, I mean, we were almost inoculated against hypocrisy, I would say, in the sense that we... Um, we would still be talking about the sort of harms of marketing or like just kind of broadly what we, the, the topics that we would talk about, even like polarization, outrage bait, all that type of stuff, while in large part participating in that to some extent. But I think acknowledging that as we went on and like continually playing into it and, and being as open as we could, it played into our favor with our audience. I mean, they, I think they largely respected that because the content was adding value to them. I think if the content was bad and we were doing it, they would, you know, respond harshly. But because they felt they were getting something out of it, they just let it slide. So that was, we, we still even had to navigate that a little bit, I would say. You know, one of the things that we touched on just a little bit ago is that whole issue of trust and even just the client being able to trust that you would delete some of those drafts and not publish them, right? But obviously, you still published a lot of things that generated some some conversation and even a bit of controversy. But going back to that trust and that partnership, none of this would have been possible without that really firmly established. So how do you go about establishing that trust? Because there are so many agencies, there's so many creatives on the agency side, there's so many people internally in-house that are trying to push towards this direction and trying to get brands to be more open and have these different conversations and not, you know, to your point earlier, just post like happy holidays, Photoshop pictures. So how can social pros really start to establish this trust? How can they really work with people and, and let them see that opening the floodgates a little bit doesn't always have to be chaotic and, and crazy? Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it is so tough. And, and we're a really weird example, just because like I laid out, I mean, the way our relationship kind of developed was almost, um, it was almost by force in the sense that we did not ex anticipate going viral the way we did. And when we did, we had to react to it. And then that kind of created a situation where the brand had a persona and a presence that was now in the limelight for, for lack of better phrasing. So we had to continually deal with that and grapple with it. So the client was kind of pushed in 
to that position, um, which obviously worked out, but that it wasn't necessarily something that we had to pitch over and over again. So I, I get this this line of a uh, questioning a lot uh, from from friends and, and colleagues as well, which is yeah, I I think case studies are obviously important. Like if you can put together whether it's you know videos that agencies or brands publish on YouTube or their website, you know, just showing that this type of thing, whether it's a Twitter persona, TikTok, whatever, it worked in their favor in some way. Obviously, going in with the empirical data to, to line up with a, a higher up exec or C-level or whoever you're trying to pitch to is super important. But I think also the other side of that is just like being able to communicate the overall value that branding and messaging brings to the company. Because obviously, most people, when you try to pitch up in those situations, you know, they're, they're numbers people. You know, they're looking at sales, bottom line. What is this going to do for us? And at the end of the day, I think most marketers, advertisers have an understanding that when you're building a brand, you know, those, those two things have to be married. You know, you have to have the sort of direct sales tactics married to the branding and messaging. The branding and messaging, especially on social media, might not one-to-one uh, tie to like sales or getting product off the shelf, whatever. Um, but it's part of that process and it's part of that long-term game of building a loyal uh, audience, you know, get generating earned media, developing those kind of like big relationships that you need to um, to establish yourself and like really break through the noise in whatever category you're in. So I think you have to be able to communicate the importance of that process and the importance of building, whether it's a social media account, a website, an email list, whatever, to those people who are much more, I guess, lean into, you know, how do we target, you know, this store that has our product uh, for these consumers to to get you know these repeat buyers whatever like that that stuff all matters but the two things have to be married and um getting that across depending on the organization some organizations really only value sales and some some and some are the opposite some only value branding and the flashy stuff that doesn't really drive sales so you can have a problem either way so you just got to figure out how to communicate how to marry those things so in terms of metrics and uh, the data that you are bringing to the table, obviously, there's still a lot of people that are stuck on vanity metrics. And then, of course, as you mentioned, a lot of other people really want to see that direct one-to-one to sales or as much as possible. So what is your recommended blend of helping to tell that story? Where are you looking at those metrics to make your case? It, it, it's impossible for me to lay out a one-to-one piece of advice here because it totally depends on the the team and the temperament of the person you're trying to pitch to. You know, if you're trying to pitch to a more creative-minded person, you know, get in there with a the flashy creative, you know, make them, make them emotionally compelled with a story, you know, show the, like, you can show those vanity metrics, but, you, but I think really the important thing is, like, showing customer interactions, showing, um, like, user-generated content, showing just the kind of, like, emotional feeling that you get from this brand in, um, whereas numbers people, yeah, you want to, even if they are vanity metrics, sometimes you need vanity metrics to really push through an idea. And I think oftentimes, too, when, when you get to the high level, it's sometimes it's really difficult to parse what is a vanity metric versus a real, you know, a tangible number that's going to help us in some way. So you got to use what you have. And I, and I think it totally depends on the team, the person, and you just have to figure out, you know, with, with you know, within your personal situation, which direction to kind of lean more into. Nathan, such a huge success in terms of social media awareness, but as you mentioned, also a lot of earned media for the brand when things kind of jump from social to traditional media, et cetera. Do you think that playbook of, of just, hey, let's not really talk about selling whatever it is we're selling, but let's talk about other things that are of interest. 
would that playbook have worked for other brands or or is the fact that it was Steakum, which has got some degree of nostalgia and maybe even irony associated with it, does does that make it easier to play that game? Or if you took, I don't know, Charmin and said, yeah, we could do it with Charmin too? I, yeah, I think um, definitely it's it's yes and. I mean, I, I do think something like this could work similarly with a Charmin, um, with another established brand. But I think that's the key. The key word is established brand. I mean, if we tried this strategy with a startup, something that had no baseline with cultural relevance or nostalgia or anything like that, there's no way it would get off the ground. I mean, not not no way, but we're talking like, you know, 0.1% or whatever chance. So I definitely think having a strong, I mean, you guys know this. I mean, you look at all the top brands that get talked about, whether it's an earned media or, or just having a big social media following. These aren't random startups or small companies. These are These are the Wendy's of the world, the you know Slim Jim, Duolingo, you know these are big companies that have either been around a long time or, like I said, became like really trendy in the zeitgeist that that really just kind of took off. You know, and I think that's that's not to discourage social media managers for smaller brands, but you do have to work harder for those smaller brands. Like you do have to figure out, you know, how do you compete with these uh, media or like you know industry yeah. giants, and I and I think that's it's all part of it. So yeah, it definitely depends on the brand. It's ironic. It's weird. It's nostalgic. It's a frozen meat company. So that, that juxtaposed with like giving life advice or whatever is definitely weird and funny, but um, it, it absolutely could work with other comparably sized uh, uh, brands, I would say. Yeah. The unexpected nature of it is part of its power, right? right? You don't necessarily expect the frozen beef sheets to, to give out this kind of advice but if you're a small brand, a new brand, like, oh, small challenger brand says weird stuff, like, well, yeah, that, that's almost the expected play for a small brand, right? So uh, you, you almost have to, to, to swim upstream. Wendy's is a good example, right? You don't expect uh, your fast food franchise to, uh, to, to sort of go with the rude card as their, as their core positioning. So I, I think it's really interesting. The other thing I wanted to ask you in terms of applicability going forward is if you were going to start this idea from scratch today would you do it on twitter or would you do it on tiktok that's a great question i, I would almost certainly do it on tiktok i i i feel that the and i've, I've talked about this a lot recently and i this again not to not to come down really any one person including myself within the, the twitter space but it feels like brands on twitter have plateaued and it feels like they all sound the same now like when i when I started in 2017, and again, I was not even close to one of the first people. I mean, there were people like Denny's Tumblr and Twitter from 2013. You know, there was like Hamburger Helper from way back. Like there's tons of brands have been doing this for a long time. But I would say that there was still a novelty up until a couple of years ago, because I think there were still enough brands kind of uh, posting cringe, as the kids say, <laughs> like just posting ridiculous stuff that felt like it was out of touch that, you know, maybe it was a, an older person on the account who, you know, wasn't in tune with like lingo or whatever. And they, they would inappropriately use a term or something like that. So you had all these moments that were still like the whole, how do you do fellow kids? Like there was still this idea of like when a brand was in touch with reality, it stood out. Now it's the opposite. Now, almost every notable brand has a millennial or a Zoomer behind it. They know the language, they know the voice, and it's created an awkward situation where now pretty much every brand almost sounds the same. I mean, even the brands that have standout voices, like even like even they on the day-to-day -day kind of um, 
the sort of like meme ecosystem, like on Twitter, where something trending pops up and everybody jumps on it, like that red flag meme with the emoji everybody did a few months ago. It's like every brand doing that now. And it just becomes this thing where Twitter as a platform, it is, it's amazing, like I said, for generating a persona. I still use it all the time. Amazing for keeping up with trends, being, being able to contact celebrities and so on. But as an ecosystem to stand out, that is getting harder and harder because every brand now is so in tune with the culture and it's, it's just making everybody sound really similar. Whereas a TikTok, it's still open enough because it's, it's pretty difficult to succeed on TikTok. And I think even when you look at a brand like Duolingo, which is the probably the most popular brand on TikTok right now, they, I, again, I'm not, I'm not, not bashing them. I think their work's incredible. But I think they would not be where they were if it weren't for the fact that they were already a meme on Tumblr years ago. There was this whole idea that the owl was evil and it was like trying to kill people or whatever. So they played into that and it took off because there was an already a pre-existing audience that knew about this meme. And they were like, oh, my gosh, look at the brand. They're playing into the meme. So I think it's really, really, really tough, no matter who you are, to break out in those situations. And obviously, when the moments come up, you got to, you know, you got to grab, grab it and, and go. But I think um, TikTok is still a wild west enough and the, the algorithm is still open enough that you can really get in that zeitgeist. And there's not there's a lot of brands doing successful work, but there's not a lot of brands distinctly personifying themselves like the mascot um, types are able to do. Like, obviously, you got sports mascots like Benny the Bull that are just naturally generating a following. And then you have some of these more branded mascots like Duolingo, even like Steakum. Steakum had the uh, has the box head. That kind of becomes a character. So if you have something like that that becomes a distinct brand, I think it's easier to take off um, in, in that way. Because you can obviously get millions of followers hiring influencers and creating account, creating content that is appealing and looks great, but it's ultimately not necessarily super branded in that in that way that gets people like looking like, oh my gosh, I'm following this uh, personified frozen meat thing. You know, like it's just a little bit of a different uh, pool, I'd say, to, to generate that earned media. Well, and I think to your point too, with TikTok, you know, in, in versus other platforms is that there is no ability to hide behind a tweet or behind a post, right? You have to be front and center, you have to be visible. So there is no more hiding anymore. And there, it's taken away that really like glossy, slick brand layer and taken it to a different interaction level. But also one of the things that, um, obviously seems like a massive opportunity. I love your take on this is just the level of food culture on TikTok. I feel like even still weeks later, every other post on my feed is about that baked by Melissa salad. And it's always some food trend. It's always some crazy new thing. Like, you know, a couple months ago, it was, you know, the uh, basically like California roll in a bowl. But it just seems like also to, you know, to Jay's point, going back and re-envisioning this on TikTok, there's so much food culture, it would fit in perfectly. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I, I definitely think any anything beautiful. I mean, it's the new Instagram in the sense of like, you know, being a visual based uh, um, app or like, obviously it's the new Vine, but like in the terms of like generating that kind of cultural move, especially for brands. I mean, yeah, food is a huge kind of interactive way now, like even internally for us, I mean, a lot of the the um, the jobs that we're doing for different clients that, that work around recipes and appetite appeal. Whereas in the past, we would primarily focus on, you know, let's, okay, let's get out the whole, the rig, you know, set up the DSLR or whatever, start shooting it like a, like a widescreen. Now the, the predominant um, platform is, is shooting it long ways for TikTok and then reels because that's just, it's, you're getting more engagement. It's, it feels much more person, 
personable, like it feels like a kind of blogging type material. So I definitely think there's space for that, especially for, for um, food brands. But just like any other platform, I mean, there's space for anything. I mean, my my For You page is absurd meme content and like nature stuff and oddly satisfying stuff. Like there's so much space. You know, if you go on Reddit or Twitter, you can find yourself in like so many of these like small subcultures. And I think that really to me is the the sort of progression of these brand trends. It's not so much the macro level where like a Wendy's comes on the scene and changes the game for everybody. Now it's I think much more on the micro scale where like you can become the the brand in this small category. Like you're the brand that does ASMR or like you're the brand that posts weird, oddly satisfying stuff or like with Duolingo, you know, you're the brand who's like the big mascot that's kind of clunky and weird. You can pick your thing, but I think because of the For You page, it generates, I mean, it's, it's individualized algorithms for every type of person. So I think creating that macro trend is harder and harder no matter what platform you're on. Yeah, you have to almost strategically embrace the notion that you may reach fewer people less often, but you're going to reach the right people more often, right? Exactly. And, and that requires a level of specificity and consistency in your execution, where if you try, you know, TikTok really rewards that, right? This is our shtick, right? And we're going to keep going to this well until the well runs dry. If you did that same kind of consistency of content on on Instagram or certainly on Facebook, um, it, it just wouldn't work, right? It just, it just wouldn't have the same kind of uh, algorithmic appeal and not even the same real world appeal. I would certainly, uh, I would certainly follow a Stakem uh, ASMR account. I feel like that's got, <laughs> got real, real potential uh, for 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 the future. Uh, let the let the new folks uh, know. Nathan, thank you so much uh, for being here. Really appreciate it. We're going to ask you the two questions we ask everybody here on Social Pros. First, what one tip would you give somebody who's looking to become a social pro? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the 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 big question, right? I mean, I I have a I mean, as you can tell by my answers, I have a hard time answering succinctly for this type of stuff because I think it's complicated and depends on the person. But I think the biggest thing for me is finding influential and interesting people on whatever platform you're trying to to operate on. You know, if you're trying to operate on Reddit, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, TikTok, whatever, continually figuring out, you know, who are the people that are drawing me in, and who are the people that could be drawing our audience and following them, cops stealing from them, you know, getting inspiration from them and then, and then going into their networks and like following the people that they're following. Like, okay, where are they getting this stuff from? You know, trying to get to the source. Um, I think that's the most important thing. And there's not really any trick to get around that. I mean, it sucks because social media managers or people that work in this space generally have to spend so much excess time on these platforms natively kind of figuring things out. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think that's what you have to do to to really excel and to really understand the culture and really get in on the ground level for this stuff. Um, that and just developing basic media literacy and, and critical thinking around how you navigate this, because obviously it takes a mental toll and an emotional toll on people's lives to to be staring at screens all the time. So just figuring out how to efficiently do that for you, you know, knowing when to take breaks knowing how to like laterally read content. So like as you're going through um, an article, you know, knowing when to click on a source, you know, quick, oh, here's a word I don't know, quick Googling that in another tab, you know, just getting quicker and 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 more um, effective at, at just navigating information goes such a long way um, in a space that is just really draining on people's uh, time and people's mental health. Um, just makes it, 
it's I always say the only way out is through. You know, you just have to go through it and 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 get better at it and figure it out and fail and stumble. Because if you don't, if you just kind of stay on the outside and just try to, you know, oh, maybe I'll just follow this big meme account. You know, they seem to be pulling in the best of stuff. You're just you're just not going to get far in this space. I love that idea of of getting quicker. We've talked on the show so often, Anna, about how much time it really takes social media practitioners. And, and it's time that that in many cases, their bosses neither recognize nor fully appreciate. Uh, and, and so if you can get incrementally quicker at, at just sort of reading the tea leaves, if you will, it will actually make your life better uh, because you won't be working 22 hours a day, maybe only 17. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nathan, last question for you, and I can't wait to hear what you say. Um, if you could do a video call with any living person, who would it be? I've been thinking about this. It's really hard to pin down one, um, but I landed on Cornell West, uh, the sort of the philosopher, activist uh, figure who, to me, it's not so much, I mean, I, I am interested in his politics, but it's not so much that to me. It's his ability to communicate complicated and oftentimes radical ideas to moderate and general audiences, which I think is such a rare gift among just communicators in general. And every time I see him in interviews or debates or conversations, I'm always just so impressed at his ability to just like be cheerful and like empathetic and bring in people who are like diametrically opposed to his beliefs and, and view of the world. And he just seems like such a master of communication. And obviously, no person, I mean, I shouldn't say no person, but he likely was not born that way. So I would love to pick his brain and figure out, you know, how did he develop those tools and like become the way he is to be so patient and like have that ability to, to maintain that calm, cheerful temperament in the face of uh, oftentimes uh, adversarial interactions. I just think it's, it's a really unique skill that I would love to, to learn more about. Yeah, that's a really interesting answer. And I, and I feel like at some level, somebody like Cornell West has to always believe the best in humanity, right? You, mm -hmm. you have to be a glass half full person in general, I think to, to kind of have that countenance uh, at, at all times. I think you can make it happen, Nathan. I think you can, I think you can set up that video call. I have, I have high hopes for your ability to execute on, uh, on that dream. I'll check back in with you in a, in please, a few years. Please, please, please. <laughs> I, I would love it. Please do check back in. We love keeping up with your exploits. Nathan Alibach from Alibach Communications, formerly uh, the man behind Stakem uh, in social, joins us this week on Social Pros. Really enjoyed having you, Nathan. Thanks for the candor and the insights. It was a blast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jay and Anna. It was a great conversation. Don't forget, you can go to socialpros.com, friends, and get transcript of this episode. Uh, we'll link to a lot of the resources that we spoke about in this show. And, of course, all the episodes going back now more than 10 years at socialpros.com. I'm Jay Bear from Convince and Convert. She's Anna Harak, also from Convince and Convert. We'll be back next week with another edition of what we hope is your favorite podcast in the whole world. This has been Social Pros. Social Pros.